frank alcoholic drug addict. Um, and seeing as this is being recorded, I thought I'd talk to the people listening to me on the recording. So it's actually Tuesday, August 17th at 12.05 a.m. And that's uh, 2021. And we're now like 17 months into the pandemic, depending on how far in the future you're listening to, you may or may not know what that was like. But all of us here in this room have been living with that for 17 months. And that's really why we're all in this room tonight, which is pretty amazing. The whole Zoom experience came as a result. Well, it came as a result for me because of the pandemic. Uh, Mark and I were talking earlier today, and uh, you know, he's like, hey, we're doing a speaker meeting at midnight. We're going to start a new meeting. And, um, and I was like, no, I'm never going to be up at midnight for meetings, you know. And then he mentioned the Australian crew that this is this would be more for them. So they have a, a new meeting. And I was like, well, I'll definitely do it for the Australian uh, community because I've been to some of those meetings. And um, so that was really my motivation for doing it. You know, I was like, oh, all right, yeah, I'm in. You know, I'll even help out with the meeting if need be. Um, just to be a service to Australia for really no particular reason. I have met some good people from there in Zoom meetings and, um, and had some good conversations. And I, I, been, I think I've been to a few meetings over there. Um, but regardless, you know, we're all part of this world community now via Zoom, which is really, really cool. But anyways, Mark and I were talking and um, we were talking about stories and, and the, good, the good stories you hear and how they stay with you. And, um, and I've been kind of like looking back over my life. Um, and I guess I should talk about that first. I'm, I'm trying to get away from that whole traditional AA speaker thing that I grew up with. So I thought I'd just like tell stories tonight. And, um, but as with any good story, you need context. So, or content. Um, yeah, I got sober at um, 17 years old. I was quarter a day. I had a, a, a lot of problems with drinking. I was aware that I couldn't control my drinking once I started. I would get more drunk than I wanted to be. I just wanted to have a good time. I just wanted, I really liked the effects of alcohol and drugs. And um, I just wanted to have fun. I wanted to have a good time. And I could just never stay in that good spot. I'd, I, I, it was like I was impatient. By the time I, I hit that good spot, I had three shots already in me because I was impatient that I hadn't got there yet. So then those would just fall on top of me and, and then I'd be drunk. And then, you know, I'd have four more shots. And then, you know, well, you guys all know the story. Um, yeah, so that was the kind of drinker I was. I just couldn't stop once I started. But I also had the mind of the chronic alcoholic where I didn't think before I took a drink about what happened last time I took a drink. So I would just like go into it blindly, like, oh, hey, let's do that again. And it would happen again and again and again. And I just didn't have that kind of thinking that said, Frank, don't do this. This is what happens when you do this. Um, but drinking and drugs were just too important. I just enjoy them too much to, to stop or even consider that being a problem. So anyways, I get quarter a day, I come in and I meet a, a whole, New world of people. 
that I'd never experienced before. And people really reached out to me and, and really seemed to give a shit. And I hadn't really experienced that much in my life up to that point. And so it was really foreign. But I got to sit in, in these meetings and it was a lot of speaker meetings back, back in the 80s. Actually, my original sobriety date was August 16th, 1985. So that was the first time I got sober. So that's when, when all this started was actually all those years ago yesterday or 10 minutes ago, actually. Um, so yeah, just a weird side note. Um, yeah, anyway, so I got to sit and listen to all these speakers tell all these great stories over the years. And, you know, and I got audio tapes from this guy that used to tape conferences. I would go and help him um, dub tapes. And I got to go to all these conferences for free and, and listen to all these great speakers. And um, and I'd hear all these great stories and, and people with these great metaphors and um, analogies and all that stuff. And, and it was just a wealth of wisdom and information. And I just soaked up as much as I could. And um you know, I remember the first time I heard somebody say they'd sniff glue at a meeting. You know, they were at a, it was a A speaker meeting and we weren't really talking about drugs. It was really frowned upon back then. It wasn't like a rule about it. But you always kind of knew that it was like taboo and you weren't supposed to talk about drugs. You could do it privately, but not from the podium. And this guy was talking about sniffing glue. And I was like, here's, you know, I, and I'm 16, 17 years old and you know, I'm in rooms full of 40 and 50 year old guys. And, ladies and um this everything was foreign and, and i didn't think i fit in anywhere and this guy was talking about sniffing glue and i was like finally here's somebody that understands there's somebody that was as bad as i was just maladjusted or juvenile delinquent whatever you want to call it that was me and here was somebody that was like me so i, I went up and talked to Ernie. and this is you know what 1986 and i still remember the guy's name ernie b and he was a vietnam veteran and um you know, he told that story. And then there was this lady and uh, she said her drug of choice was like Percocet or something. Or um, I think she was a nurse or something. And she had, she had access to IV drugs. And she said that from the meeting, it was just a huge uproar at the meeting about how she could say that a drug was her drug of choice. Alcohol wasn't her first choice. And for her to speak at a speaker meeting was wrong. And she told the story. She was a, she was in construction at some point. And and uh, you know, here's this night lady in a nice dress up at the podium telling these stories. She's talking about her drinking and how she actually peed in her hard hat at work one time. Uh, what was her name? I had it earlier today. I was thinking about it. Anyways, but those those are the kind of stories that I heard, and just the the, the honesty that was. Um, spread at the meetings and the sincerity that I felt coming from people um, just really blew me away and really shaped my whole life. Um, there was this guy, Charlie, Charlie B. Charlie had probably 30 years back then. And he was probably 80 years old. And he talked about driving one of those old Model A cars drunk and, and running through one of those big hay piles that they used to do on the farmer's field. They would just pile all the hay up. And he ran his car through that. And I'll just never forget that. Um, those great stories. You know, here's some, you know, you're looking at this guy who's 75, 80 years old, been sober forever, nicest, soft spoken guy, talking about what a hell hellion he was when he was a teenager. And um, and how it was just the same problems back then that I was having now, you know, it was timeless. That was really what struck me about it. Um, 
but in like what well, me and Mark were talking about, just like telling stories, how that how cool that would be. Because that's what I always remember. I remember those drunken hay bale stories and the, the peeing in the hard hat stories and sniffing glue stories. And um, early on in Zoom, I was at some meeting somewhere and this guy was talking about being at a concert. And there's this really pretty girl standing in front of him dancing and singing, and he just threw up all over her back. And I just I, and I just couldn't stop laughing. I just thought that was the funniest thing ever because that that's the kind, that's the kind of thing that happened to me when I would drink. Um, I remember I fell through somebody's glass top table at some bar, some party my buddy, my pot smoking sponsor took me to. It was on uh, like St. Patrick's Day or something, and we got all hammered up, and I fell through somebody's glass table, and he started yelling at me. I'm like, "Why do you take me to these places?" And I totally blamed him for taking me to this party. I was like, I was totally content to sit at his house smoking bong after bong, and he wanted to go to this party. So it was really all his fault. Yeah, so I do 22 months my first time around. Um, I get a girl pregnant. We meet in AA. She's, for some reason, she goes to meetings. She was in like this um, teen institute thing where they, it was like an outreach to troubled kids in high school. And she was somehow a part of that. And somehow she got hooked up in AA. And somehow we met, fell in love, had kids. Um, so I waited like 16 months before I dated anybody in the program because they told me to wait for the first year not to date. So I, I took that real serious. I, I was like, man, that was the last thing I wanted to do because I emotionally I could not handle those real big emotions. And, and, you know, my first love really tore me up in high school. So I was happy to take a break from it. Um, so anyways, um, you know, I'm living in my mom's basement at the time. Um, I just graduated high school. Um, college was never going to be an option because I was a chronic alcoholic and I knew it would just be a big waste of money because I would just, I had no discipline. And, um, and I'm, I don't have a job. I'm, I'm working like part-time for my brother, like maybe eight hours a week. That's zero, eight, not 80, just zero, eight hours a week. And I'm just riding my dirt bike every day, having fun. I'm going to meetings every night, hanging out with all these young people that I met in AA. Just living, living this great sober life as a teenager. And then I get this girl pregnant and I have like this nervous breakdown. And, um, you know, my brother calls me into the office and my boss, his boss is there. And, uh, and they're like, well, we're, if you want to do this, you know, we'll, we'll work you full time, but you'll have to you know, really work. So I, I started working 60 hours a week for the family business. And um, of course, all, all my meetings cut down, all my you know, friendships cut down. And um, you know, I'm just stressed, stressed out like I've never been stressed before. You know? and, uh, and my brothers go to Indianapolis every year for the time trials at the Indy 500. And we take motorcycles down there. And it's this big family, drunk fest, you know. And, uh, and I decided I'm going to go. And, and I get this idea that I can party one weekend out of the year and get it all out of my system, all this new stress I have. I just need to chill out and relax and have fun. And so I do. And I get high before we even leave the state. And I party all weekend. Same thing always. I get hammered drunk, end up passed out in the bathroom. Um, we were wandering around the streets of Fort Wayne, Indiana, drunk. And we had no idea where we were going. And my brother just happened to be going by and picked us up. Um, a lot of good stories from that weekend, but I won't go into all that. Anyway, so I come back and, and you know, I'm, I'm coming back to meetings and this, this place that was uh, 
really sacred to me had somehow gotten tarnished because I, I wasn't telling anybody the truth. So I grabbed my sponsor and I said, like, hey, man, I got wasted over the weekends. And he's like, dude, I got a bag in the car. So my sponsor, who was like this golden child in the AA, you know, he, he'd gotten sober, gone to college, was a CPA, got a good job working downtown, wore a suit to work every day, went to those lunchtime meetings downtown. And he was like the AA superstar. And turned out he'd been smoking pot the whole time. So me and him just go out, we're off and running. Um, so I don't get sober again. I just start smoking pot with him. And I stay away from drinking for a long time. I end up picking up again. I got a cold and I started drinking cough medicine. And I had done cough medicine all through high school. So I fell right back into that. And, um, and I did that for a long time. And then I just, we're down, down in the flats of Cleveland at this bar. And I was like, just give me rum and coke. You know, I got this little bottle of medicinal cough medicine in my pocket. And I'm like, this is stupid. I'm just going to start drinking again. And it was like, it was just like, that. it was just a conscious decision. This is, this is dumb. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to start drinking. And it was just like, I never stopped and everything just fucking went straight to shit. And, um, you know, here, this girl I met in AA now has, you know, I come home and announce that I'm drinking again. And, uh, you know, she'd gone to Al-Anon, so she had like a good idea. And she just starts like freaking out, throwing up the red flags to the family. Like Frank cannot safely drink. He's an alcoholic. And, and my, my family just welcomed me back. They're like, they're happy to have me back partying with them again. They're like, oh, we missed you. And, and her, her dad's like an old school um, boxer. And he's like, hey, Frank works hard. He's deserved to come home and drink when he gets off of work. And uh, so it, it, was, it was just such a, a weird situation to, to, to meet somebody in sobriety get involved, have kids, and then have her, she was like the best spouse at that time. And then when I started drinking, she became the worst spouse because all she did was talk about, you know, how fucked up I was and, and how dangerous all this was. And, you know, she tried interventions and she had people come over and talk to me and, you know, it was just a constant, it was a nightmare. Anyways, um, so yeah, I, I get serious drinking, you know, I, I just don't care anymore. And uh, I'm drinking myself to death and I don't care. And I'm physically, I'm really in bad shape. And uh, um, oh, so somehow it just turns into the old fashioned stories, I guess, the old AA lead. Um, but yeah, I get caught again on a bicycle. Um, she called the police on me because I was drunk. And um, I was growing all this pot in the basement. And there was like no hiding. You open the side door and you could smell fresh pot. I got really good at it over the time that I was doing it. And um, so she calls the police and I decide to leave. That way I don't get caught growing all this pot. And, you know, I got little kids in the house. And I figured they'd, you know, get me for child endangerment. And, you know, who knows what they would come up with. And um, so I figured it's better off just going out on the street and getting like a public intox and getting arrested in my house. And, um, you know, I got a pickup truck and a motorcycle and I decided to take this bicycle because I don't want another DWI. I want to be able to continue drinking. That's the whole key to my drinking is I give up everything that may take my drinking away. So I gave up driving because I was always over the legal limit. And, um, so I just like sacrifice everything else and I get my circle gets really small and I just stay home and I drink by myself all the time around the clock <coughs> excuse me 
Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm out riding this bicycle and I'm hammered. You know, it's like Saturday and I've been drinking whiskey, especially after we got into a little conflict. I went down to the liquor store and I got these little um, Jim Beam lightweight travelers. So I'm riding around this bicycle drinking these and uh, just watching out for the cops. And then they finally spot me. And, um, so they start chasing them and they're in their cars and I'm on this bicycle and I'm trying to outrun them. And I'm hammered drunk, you know, they got the sirens going, they're talking to me on the microphone. Um, so it's this lady cop and she's talking out the window. She's like, Frank, we just want to No, you're going to arrest me. I'm not stopping. And she's like, no, Frank, we're worried about you. Your wife's worried about you. You got kids at home. Just stop before something bad happens. And I said, okay, well, you just promise that you won't arrest me. She said, okay, I promise. So I stopped and they arrested me. And I took me to jail. And that was a rough night. And I had to detox in jail, no cigarettes. And I was, you know, withdrawing from alcohol. And uh, that, was a, that was a rough, rough night. So I go to court. And the last thing I want to do is come back to these meetings. I don't want to go to AA ever again. My thinking at the time was I tried that sober thing once and I didn't like it. Just let me do what I want to do and leave me alone. And um, you know how we get caught up in all those rights and I'm an American, I should be able to drink and you know, I'm not hurting anybody else and that whole thinking. And that's really, you know, my thinking is just so far from what it is now. It is, it's shocking to me that it's the same brain. Um, what did I tell somebody the other day? Um, it was like the, the sober part of my brain just fell asleep and the alcoholic drinking part just woke up and took over. And that's kind of how it was for me. It was like night and day, black and white, Jekyll and Hyde. You know, I'm either here with you guys or I'm out there doing my thing. There's not much in between. There's not much, hey, I should try to go back to AA again. And uh, my thinking just goes to the extreme. Don't send me back there. So they, they did. They sent me back. I got ordered back to AA and uh, you guys saved me again. And, um, yeah, so that was um, that's a variety dates, January 10th, 1995. And that's when I got sold right. I'd um, been going to meetings, but I was still smoking pot and I used the, the, the marijuana to get off of the drinking. So I was drinking like 14, 16 beers a day and I just started um. I, at first, I was calling all these treatment centers saying, hey, can I get some drugs that would make me feel like I'm drinking 14 beers a day so I can stop drinking the 14 beers a day? You know, I just need something to replace that. And they're like, no, we can't give you any drugs unless you come to treatment. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I just, you know, I just need to quit drinking. And regardless, they, you know how it is. They don't give you anything over the phone. So I just started tapering off. I drink one beer less a day. So I'm doing 16 beers and I do 15 beers and I do 14 beers. And it wasn't consistent. I mean, sometimes it'd be 12 beers a day for four days in a row. <clears throat> but I eventually get off and I'm just smoking pot. I'm going to stop smoking weed. It's in my house and I harvested that whole big crop I had in the basement. And um, I had this big, uh, big bag of blood left. And I came home from the meeting one night and I was like, man, if I don't get rid of this, I'm never going to stop smoking it. So I flushed it down the toilet. And that was on um, January 9th. 
So January 10th was my first clean day, completely off of everything. Um, yeah, so a lot of bunch of stuff happened. You know, I got sober again. Things got good. Things got bad. I got divorced. Um, moved to Florida. No, I moved to Columbus first. Yeah, then, then um, man, I don't even know <laughs> if I want to talk about anything else. Because um, that's really the most important thing, you know. That's just staying, staying clean and staying sober and staying in meetings really was the key for me. Um, yeah, I moved to Columbus. I got hooked up in Columbus AA, and a lot of good things happened down there. I was down there like three years. Real strong meetings, really good fellowship. Uh, we all went to Hawaii together for the state AA conference in Hawaii one year. That was pretty cool. Um, I got a cough. Yeah. So. Columbus, Hawaii. Um, yeah, I came back up to Cleveland. What brought me back up there? Well, I had a job offer up there in Cleveland, and I came back up for that. And um, slowly got back into meetings again, and um, I got busy again, and you know things got good. And uh, so 2008, I was um, working this job, working pretty hard. I was making good money. It was the summertime. It was May. It was like a hot, early summer day. And I was working in this garage, and I just, like, something stuck in my sinuses. That's what it felt like. And, um, and I, just, I just couldn't get it loose. And, you know, I was complaining about it, complaining about it. Nothing happened. So I get off work, I go home, I'm laying in bed, watching TV, and I'm, I'm going to take a nap. My buddy calls, he's like, hey, let's go take the bikes out. You know, I, but at this point, I had bought a crash rocket um, because I drove so much for my job. I would get home from work, and the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, come home, eat dinner, get back in my truck and drive to an aid. So I bought this motorcycle to motivate me to get back out of the house and go to, go to meetings. And, um, and it really worked. And I really loved it. And uh I always knew that the meetings were really important, you know, after, especially after my first failure of cutting down my meetings. Um, yeah, so I get off work, you know, I don't feel like going out. My buddy calls, he's like, hey, let's take the bikes out. I'm like, no, no, I'm just going to take a nap. So I'm laying there watching TV and I hear this little pop in my head, you know, like your neck pop. And, and then I felt like blood was running down the back of my head. And I reached back and, and I did one of these and I was like, there's nothing. I was like, shit, there's blood on the inside of my head somehow. And then I break out in this huge cold sweat and I got to run straight to the toilet. Everything's just coming out. And I'm like, fuck, my body's shutting down. I think I'm having a stroke, you know? Scariest thing ever. And um, so I called 911, you know? And uh, so I, I'm, I'm out in the driveway sitting and waiting for the, the fire trucks to show up. And, uh, you know, I was going to drive to the hospital, but I was afraid I'd not out and kill somebody because I wasn't really that far from the hospital. It was only like a five minute drive, but I was afraid I'd kill somebody. And I was at this point, I'm driving this big suburban and it, you know, it, were, it could have really hurt somebody. So, so I wait for the ambulance and the fire firemen, and they're like, I said, I think I'm having a stroke. And they're like, no, no, you just got a headache. And I said, man, I've had headaches all my life. This is something different. You need to take me to the hospital right now. So eventually they do. 
And it turned out I had an aneurysm. I had a blood vessel burst in my brain. So I actually did have blood flowing in my head. And um, so they called me down. You know, they put me on drugs just to chill out, whatever. And then they life-flight me to another hospital where they do the surgery. And um, so, yeah, they saved my life. It's, it's a big deal. They gave me a 10% chance of surviving the surgery, just living through it. Not like walking, talking, working ever again. And, um, but every time I come to, there's a, a whole a bunch of different AAs in my room. You know, all the people that I'd known from the meetings for all those years were visiting me at the hospital. You know, somebody put the word out, everybody showed up. And um, it was really incredible, the whole experience. Man. Just a, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a story. Um, yeah, so I, I, I recover slowly. You know, I have a lot of left side nerve damage. I have to walk with a walker for a long time. Um, I don't know if you guys can see it on camera, but I still shake sometimes um, when I get excited or whatever. Um, but yeah, like my left shoulder, my left hip, my left knee would just randomly jerk, you know, all of a sudden it would just. <laughs> so the, the whole process of recovering from that has been like really weird. Um, I can go through all that, but I don't want to. And the important thing is um, that I recovered from that and, and they gave me some really, really good drugs like I'd never had before in the hospital. And I was really worried that I'd like activated my disease again and then I might pick up a drink. So I went right back to meetings and, you know, it's like I, I had this, I had all these staples in my head and it was just fucking ugly to look at. And my eyes were blackened and, and it was, you know, just embarrassed, you know. But I had to go to meetings, and that's all we had. You know, it was face to face. So I would put this surgeon hat on to keep my stitches from getting infected at these meetings with all these dirty people, you know, all these germy, germy people, you know, and uh, and yeah, and I did. I survived. And, uh, I didn't pick up. And uh, yeah, so then I decided to move to Florida. I'd gone through a bad breakup with this girl and. Um, it's like the thought of running into her somewhere on the street drove me to Florida because it was that big of a deal. And um, so, yeah, I moved to Florida and uh, lived down there for 10 years. I started having these weird um, adrenaline rushes. I would like sit at a stop sign and nothing would be in my head or anything and I would just get this full body adrenaline rush where we just go whoosh man and, and you know if you guys know what that feels like that's what it, for no reason I'm just sitting in a stop you know so I'm going to doctor after doctor nobody can figure it out and uh so they put me on Ativan to kind of calm me down um and I kept thinking there was something wrong then I would go and get an MRI and a CT scan to see if I had another brain bleed because I had no idea what was causing these things. Nobody else did really either. And uh, so to chill me out, they put me on that. And that just fucking destroyed my memory. Um, that was a really dark time. It's just really, really crazy. Anyways, I come back up to Cleveland for a funeral. I ride back home on a motorcycle. And uh, the next day, my head starts swelling up where they had done another surgery and um so i go to four different hospitals i'm like look this is what's happening 
you need to address this. And they're like, oh no, just come back if it gets bigger. And um, so I finally called my neurosurgeon and she comes in and sees me. She's like, yeah, we got to do surgery right now. So they had replaced that bone hatch they cut in my head with a titanium mesh. And then the mesh got infected with MRSA. And it, apparently the motorcycle ride jarred the MRSA loose somehow, whatever, I don't know how that works. Um, so they took that out and I went with nothing in my head for like seven months. I had to wear this bicycle helmet and because uh, it was like nothing protecting my brain. And I came to Cleveland Clinic and got the plastic put in, the laser cut of plastic to get in my head. And I, I was just a lot more comfortable with that. And uh, the guy in Florida told me not to get the um, mesh again because it attracts bacteria. So that's another story. And uh, yeah, but being on that Ativan, um, you know, I, I grew up in the old school AA where you didn't take medication. And uh, if you did take medication, you weren't really 100% sober. So I didn't really feel 100% comfortable at meetings. And, uh, you know, part of it was, was that, and part of it was just me being a natural isolationist. And, and then, you know, especially having all those weird symptoms I had, you know, I just felt like crazy a lot of the times and uh, like brain damage crazy from the surgeries and um, just really, really alone, really isolated, really different from everybody. Um, yeah, so I started isolating and I quit going to meetings. Um, that got really serious. I, I did months like that. It was just really serious depression and misdiagnosed, all kinds of stuff. They put me on different meds and they fucked me all up. Um, so I finally just decided, fuck you, I'm not gonna take anything now. So I detoxed off of everything. And I just wanted to see how bad I really was. You know, I just wanted to. I just gave up my faith in doctors and psychiatrists and all that. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to get off everything and see how it is. And uh, so that was like September, two years ago. And I crawl back to meetings. I start going back to face-to-face -face meetings. And it's really hard for me. I'm just, the anxiety is really high. I got a lot of weird stuff in my head all the time. So I can sit through a meeting for about 15 minutes and then I got to get up and go. I just can't take it. And a couple of people noticed that, you know, after a couple of weeks and they, this one guy followed me out to the parking lot and he said, Hey man, what's going on? Why do you, you know, what's, he just, he just cared. And he just reached out and uh, I kind of broke down and told him everything that was going on. And, and uh, he, he just helped me get back to meetings on a regular basis and be able to sit through one. So I finally get like almost back on my feet again and the pandemic happens. And uh, I'm like, fuck, <laughs> I'm finally starting to feel somewhat sane, somewhat normal. And now I can't go to meetings anymore. And uh, somebody introduces me to the Zoom meeting and uh, my old home group from like 25 years ago. It's like, hey, you can come in and see all the old crew. You know, we're on this Zoom meeting. We're on the you know, phones or your computer or whatever you want to use. So I go there and I, I catch up with all my old buddies and that's great. And I meet this other guy who I knew from years ago. He's like, hey, we got this other meeting you can come to. And that was twice a day, seven days a week. So it was noon and nine, seven days a week. And that's what I did. I went to all those meetings week after week, month after month. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you the transformation. I mean, I'm not the same person that came to Zoom, whatever, 17 months ago. Um, just it, it was just amazing how good this worked for me. And you know, I, I have a lot of friends that don't like Zoom. They don't like going to Zoom meetings. They just don't think it's real. But I was here early 
at a meeting early on in Zoom experience, and this girl was sharing, and she started crying, and I, and I could feel the tears welling up in my eyes. And I realized this was a real deal. This was not looking at a computer screen. This was, there was somebody right there, and I was right there with her, you know? And it really it just got really real for me. And, and, and I just, I don't know, man. It was like, it was perfect for me. This is exactly what I needed, exactly the time I needed it. And uh, I've really just, the transformation has been incredible. Um, you know, I, I'm still off all my medication. I haven't taken anything in like September. So yeah, it'll be two years next month. Yeah, since I've taken any kind of um, medication for my head or my thinking or my depression or anxiety. Um, yeah, and the Zoom has really taken all that away. I mean, up to like six months ago, I was still having panic attacks on a regular basis. The anxiety was through the roof all the time. And, uh, and I don't know what, how this works it's not like i worked any special step or threw myself into the program harder because i haven't all i do is show up in meetings and talk to people honest to god that's all i do i mean i was having problems with my landlord and i went to this meeting and this girl said why don't you do a four step on me and i was like fuck you're absolutely right that's exactly what the issue is and that's all the step work i've done since i've been in zoom uh, just to be honest with you guys and i don't have a sponsor i haven't had a sponsor in fuck my last one died. Uh, God, that was probably 25 years ago, 24 years ago. Yeah, so I've been without a sponsor. I haven't worked any steps since the initial, you know, that, you know, and occasionally I'll look at it and, you know, take care of stuff as it comes along. But like to sit down and go through the steps again, I haven't done. Um, I rarely think about the steps. I am a fellowship, I'm a meeting makers make it kind of guy. I hang out with you guys, I talk to you guys, I come clean with you guys, I share things I don't wanna share with you guys. Um, I share more than I wanna share a lot of times. Um, and it works, and I just, I, I keep improving and I can see the improvement. Um, my thinking's clearer, uh, the decision-making better, the anxiety's gone most of the time well it would be nice to have that gone permanently I and mean, then i still suffer from depression it just sneaks up on me that you know like if i could catch it coming i think i could put a, a stop to it but I, I just it's still so subtle that i don't catch it and, and a part of me thinks i i just fucking like doing nothing or staying in bed all day <laughs> you know maybe, maybe it's more laziness than depression um but not to make light of it you know i, I do have serious depression issues. Uh, but it hasn't been as big as a factor as it was a year ago, for sure. Um, yeah, my son's got 12 years sober. My daughter got sober two years ago, which all fell into that weird timeline with the Zoom. Um, we took, she collapsed at her mother's wake. My ex passed away, and uh, it was just brutal, man. Fucking brutal. The whole thing was fucking horrible. I don't, there's not a word bad enough to describe the situation that was and what we all went through. Um, Yeah, but so at her wake, my daughter collapsed and she'd been closet drinking and we didn't know it. And uh, 
we took her to the hospital. She had a 0.4 blood alcohol level. And that was like, that was better than mine. That was better than I ever blew. I mean, she beat me and, and, and I didn't even notice that's how wasted she was. Um, Cause she was still functioning until she just fucking dropped, you know? But at that point, I realized how far from AA I'd become, you know, it's like, I, I, I wanted to be able to help her, but I didn't feel like I had the tools to help her anymore because I would been so long since I'd been involved in AA. And they really pushed me to get back into it and really just fucking sharpen my shit, you know, get my thinking right again. And uh, for her sake, you know. Yeah, I've always been a parent, you know, ever since that, when I was, when I was 19, I had that nervous breakdown. And I was like, all right, well, this is what, this is it, you know, it's like my, to give you like a glimpse of my family. It's like, I don't know how much my money my mom offered to, for me to like disappear, but that was her solution to me getting my girl pregnant. She, it was either five or 10 grand. She's like, here, you can take this money and go and we'll tell her we don't know where you went. And that was the solution to me getting a girl pregnant um, without wedlock, without, you know, <laughs> as my father-in-law used to say, you uh, don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. And that pretty much described the situation when, when we got together and we got pregnant. Um, but I became a parent. I became a dad. And, uh, you know, now that they're grown, it's, I, I just kind of lost my way. That was such a guiding force in my life. That was my motivation for everything. And, and now I don't have that drive. I don't have that push. And, uh, you know, I've been single for a long time, too, to all this. Uh, the last relationship I was in with, with a girl that used to be in AA, and then she started drinking again, and she thought she might want to try AA again. And, and, you know, and then she started drinking with me in my house down in Florida. And uh, it just got really ugly and really bad. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I didn't like how I was in that relationship. And uh, so I just decided, you know, I'm not gonna do that for a while. And, uh, and, I, and I wonder if that would change my motivation. Like if I got involved with somebody, if I would be more motivated to you know, make money and be successful and, you know, if I got that drive back, um, you know, because I got grandkids now. I have a great grandson that I've never seen because of the COVID. Uh, he's going to have be a year old coming up quick. And uh, my daughter just got diagnosed with COVID Friday, Thursday or Friday. Yeah. And uh, she's 33, two years sober. And uh, her daughter, is my granddaughter and her her son is my great grandson. And so they're all at risk down there in Florida and they live in Florida and it's just such a shit show down there um, with the pandemic and the COVID and, you know. So I wanted to go down and see them, but then the numbers started flaring and now she's got it. Today, she said she's finally starting to feel better. So that, that's good. And, you know, we're, we've all been really strong genetically. We just don't, we're not like a sick, we just don't get sick. No. It's like my son got COVID and he didn't even know it. His girlfriend tested positive because she got exposed to work. And then uh, he tested just because she tested and it turned out he had had it. And he didn't know it, you know. Um, then, you know, I could have had it and not known it too. I don't, I don't really know. I, I've never been tested. 
but I did get vaccinated. So, and that was a whole big fucking experience. You know, it's like nothing's fucking easy for us the way we think. You know, everything's got to be <laughs> pros and cons. And, you know, what if this happened? And, and uh, you know, I can get crazy with diagnoses and, and things I see on the internet. Um, but what's cool about the, the, the Zoom is I can hang out with you guys and, and put a positive spin on a lot of that insanity. And, uh, because we have a lot of it in common. You know, it's like the more unique I am, the more unique I think I am, the more I'm like everybody else, that kind of thing. Because I hear it from you guys and then I feel okay talking about it, you know. Um, and I'm not in any way, shape or form a, a really good responsible, mentally healthy, emotionally healthy adult male in recovery. Um, I mean, there's still a lot <laughs> that, you know, you know, I guess it just depends on what standards you go by. Uh, I know I'm a good father. I'm, I know I, I love my dogs. I know I'm a good friend um, to people. I mean, I'm not like a really... I'm not like I call you every day to see how you're doing, friend. But if you call me and you need to talk, I'll be there for you. I'm that kind of a friend. I'm just not very thoughtful. I don't think about doing things outside that are nice to people, for people. Or, I mean, I get inspired sometimes and I do it. You know, I'll send people a text message like, hey, how you doing? Thinking about you. Um, but it's not like a working part of my brain. And, you know, I would like to see that improve. I guess that's really what I'm saying is, there's a lot of things I, I would like to see improved in myself and eventually maybe I'll get there. But for right now, um, being sober is enough, not taking any prescription drugs is enough. Um, surviving the pandemic without fucking losing control, losing my shit is enough. Um, yeah, so. I don't know, that, that went nothing like I had planned on it going. I, I thought I would tell a couple of cool stories from my childhood and um, some cool stories when I was drinking and, and uh, the cool stories I heard in AA. And, uh, but it, it just turned into a like, lead like every other fucking lead I've ever done. Uh, so I guess that's how it's supposed to go, you know? Um, but like before the meeting started, I could see it turning into like the 3 a.m. stream of consciousness comments that Mark used to make. You know, it was like midnight here or two o'clock in the morning here. And it's like 5 a.m. there. Mark's been up for days. And he, he would make these comments that were just, just these beautiful stream of consciousness things. And you would, you could just like go there with him. It was like you were in his brain. And, and we'd be all slapped at before, you know, it's just that good, sober, fucking weird stuff we do, you know? Um, yeah. So I got a lot of really good friends I cherish. I mean, I didn't really talk about too snow. Uh, but Tusnu has been great. Um, yeah, and those of you that know, know, you know, so you don't need to hear it from me. Um, but yeah, that's fucking, I love the Zoom. I love the whole experience. And I still don't think I really have a firm grasp of what's going on inside me or inside this or where this is going to go. I think it's going to be years before I'm able to say, wow, that's what really fucking happened then. A lot of times it doesn't even feel real, you know. I'm just looking at a screen and I'm looking at Bridget's picture. I mean, there could be nobody in the room. You guys could have all left. And I wouldn't know it because I'm just looking at Bridget. Oh, there's Bridget. 
yeah, so Bridge is still here. Yeah, I'll shut up. Um, thanks everybody for coming. And uh, I don't know how this meeting's gonna go week after week, but we did it tonight. And I put another recording up for somebody that may need it someday. And uh, we put a meeting out for the guys in Australia so they could be here at a normal hour for them. Um, and the people that, the time zones I don't even know about that may be here. Um, you know, but this is, it's not where we are, it's when we are. That's my, that's my Zoom saying, you know, we're all here now. It doesn't matter where we are, it matters when we are. And that's right fucking now. So yeah, I'll shut up. Thanks everybody for coming. I love almost all you people that I know um, here in Zoom land. And uh, yeah, don't ever quit going to fucking meetings, man. Cause that's, that's been my mistake a few times and it almost fucking killed me. So stay here. I'm done.